0: Hello, you're listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Joshua, your host for this episode. We're joined today by Brian Dodd, who's an Associate Professor of History at Whitman College. Brian's research is centered on the cultural history of late imperial China, a theme which he returns to in his latest book, The Chili Pepper in China, A Cultural Biography. The book traces the evolution of the chili pepper from obscurity as a foreign import to ubiquity as an indigenous plant and more recently as a symbol of revolution. In telling this compelling story, Brian sheds light on the cultural and historical backdrop against which the chili pepper rose to prominence in late imperial China. It's a fascinating look, not only into how China changed the chili, but more importantly, how the chili fundamentally transformed China. Thanks for joining us today, Brian. A very warm welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Joshua. I'm delighted to be here.
0: If you don't mind, I'd like to start with a question about yourself. What got you started on this journey as a cultural historian of late imperial China?
1: So I actually started off as an undergraduate, majoring in international relations and French, and then decided that that wasn't a perfect fit for me. And so I initially did a master's degree at the University of Michigan in Chinese studies, which is an interdisciplinary master's program that allowed me to take courses in a wide range of uh, disciplines. And I quickly decided I really wanted to keep pursuing was history. And so when I finished that degree, I then went on to the Ph.D. program at the University of Pittsburgh in Chinese history. and. I ended up sort of the cultural history focus i was really interested in popular religion um, really interested in the role of women in chinese history and so for my dissertation and first book i looked at pilgrimages to mount Tai in shandong um so that was that a very much of a popular religion look um but it also involved looking some at the state as well. Um, yeah, so that's sort of how I got into it. And you did spend
0: a fair bit of time in China. Was it there that you began to gain an appreciation for the chili pepper?
1: Yes, it really was. I mean, certainly I'd eaten chilies in the US before going to China. But my interest in in eating chilies definitely increased dramatically with all the different Chinese food that I was eating. Um, So this project on the chili peppers occurred to me when I was eating at a Sichuan restaurant in Beijing. And, you know, I knew in the back of my mind that the chili pepper was originally a crop from the Americas. And so I started thinking to myself and wondering, how did the Chinese start eating the chili pepper, which has this very different flavor, very intense, spicy flavor, um, typically in, within a culture, a cuisine is, is typically fairly conservative and, until you really get into the very modern period. So it was interesting for me to think about how the Chinese started eating the chilies, how the chili spread once it was in China, and then how it worked its way into other aspects of Chinese culture besides the cuisine.
0: Yours is the first large-scale English language work to discuss the history of the chili pepper in China, from its introduction to its myriad uses and applications. I suppose the first question would logically be, How and when did the chili pepper arrive in China?
1: So the chili pepper doesn't get outside of the Americas until Columbus. And it's probably, he probably didn't bring it back to Spain and Europe until his second voyage. So probably, uh, 1494 is when it first gets to Europe and then it starts spreading from there. Um, The earliest known record for the chili pepper in China is 1591. So that's actually less than 100 years um, for it to go from the Americas, essentially around the the globe to China, Um, which I think for that early modern period is pretty amazing that it traveled that quickly. And it probably got to China prior to that first written source. Uh, I My best guess would be the 1570s, uh, maybe 1580s when it arrived in China. Um, we're, one of the things I really hoped to be able to do when I started this project would, would be to trace it pretty carefully from the Americas to Spain, from Spain t- into Asia and eventually to China. Unfortunately, this was something that is not possible to pinpoint exactly. And the main reason for that is, is actually a characteristic of the chili pepper itself. Um, so the chili pepper, unlike traditional spice trade spices like nutmeg or black pepper or cinnamon, which all require a tropical or semi-tropical climate, the chili pepper will actually grow in temperate climates. And so it never existed in the early modern period as a trade commodity. Instead, I think it was moving primarily in the galleys, the kitchens on ships for members of the crews. And that's how it moved. And so one of the things you don't have are ship manifests of crates and crates of chilies. And and that's one of the reasons why it's really hard to pinpoint exactly how it's getting uh, from the Americas over to Asia.
0: How did the way the chili pepper arrive in China and, and spread throughout China differ from other plants like the black pepper or nutmeg or tobacco?
1: Um. So... The, so the introduction of black pepper into China is happening around oh, 200 to 400 some, CE, somewhere in there. And that's coming from South Asia. And that it really until you get to probably the 20th century, it's continually imported into China. and And so it's pretty expensive because it's an import if we look at the chili pepper compared to other crops from the Americas arriving in China, there is definitely a difference between the chili pepper and those other ones. So first ones that really take off are the high caloric, uh, crops, the sweet potato, the white potato, maize, and the peanut. Um, And those are all actively promoted by members of the elite and, and sometimes directly by the Chinese government as crops to plant. And they also, uh, most of those will grow in soil that doesn't work for rice farming. And so there's actually able to increase some of the arable land, amount of arable land and those crops in both China and Japan are partly responsible for the big population boom that happens in the early modern period. So the chili pepper does not get that big uh, elite support and big government support. Um, It also differs from tobacco, which has a lot of support because of it, it being a cash crop so there's an, an economic incentive for planting and growing tobacco. Um, so the chili pepper differs from those in that it, it's, it really just becomes a crop that people are planting in their kitchen garden or in their vegetable garden, and they're growing it for themselves. And we don't really get it as something you're finding a lot of in markets until quite a bit later after its introduction.
0: And which parts of presumably coastal China did the chili pepper arrive at first?
1: So I wasn't able to trace this as, as closely as I was hoping to just because the record, Chinese records, are detailed enough. But the earliest record is from Hangzhou. So the central coast area um, is then the earliest known place for entry of the chili pepper into China. And then based primarily on the primary name given to Chili Pepper, I argue, and some other Chinese historians also argue, that the Chili Pepper also entered independently from Korea into Northwest China, and then was also introduced separately by the Dutch into Taiwan.
0: You mentioned this earlier, that you aren't the first person to attempt to trace the story of the chili pepper and its rival in China. There are a couple of articles and one book-length anthropological study, all in Chinese, that have attempted to shed the light on this very subject. How would you say your methodology and your conclusions differ from these colleagues of yours?
1: Sure. Um, So there's a really excellent historical article in Chinese by Zhang Mudong and Wang Suming, and they also, they're, they're using predominantly uh, gazetteers, uh, local histories, um, and I also use those a lot, but I draw on other sources Probably the biggest difference between their work and mine would be that, you know, theirs is an article, so they just can't go into great depth. Um, and then I'm I'm particularly interested in some of the cultural impacts of the chili pepper, and they're doing a little bit more economical approach. And then very recently, so a book came out just last year while I was doing the, proofs for my book, uh, by Tao Yu. And he's looking at specifically at the history of the chili pepper, but also does quite a bit of work in the contemporary period because his training is primarily as an anthropologist. Um, so I really think his, his work on the contemporary period is great and he's doing a lot of things that I wasn't doing like interviewing, uh, people for the contemporary use of the chili pepper. Um, Where I differ in terms of the historical analysis is he puts a lot of emphasis on the chili pepper being spread by merchants and by trade. And I disagree. I think it was being spread essentially from farmer to farmer um, amongst people who have, um, you know, market, they would go to the same market or they'd be involved in several villages would often make exchanges in terms of marriage markets. And I think the chili pepper is primarily spreading that way. So sort of word of mouth and hand to hand rather than in any sort of trade until we really get in the trade doesn't really happen until we get very modern
0: while we're on the topic of methodology and sources perhaps you could tell us now what sources you relied on for your research what they can tell us and more importantly what they can't
1: (laughs) okay so uh gazetteers or local histories the difangzhi are really really important source for this study um I'm looking primarily at the local products section in that, in those volumes. And that is typically uh, a place where things that are grown and produced in a particular uh, county or prefecture or province are described to readers Um, and a lot of those, if they include chili pepper, all they're going to include is just the name. Um, so two characters. And then ones that the next sort of level would be, there's a couple of sentences describing the chili pepper. Um, and then the ones that are the most useful will add a few more sentences and talk a little bit about local naming or local use. Um, and those are, those are quite useful. Um, one of my favorites is one where we can see some class differences where the author's obviously a member of the elite. Um, and he talks about farmers growing two different varieties of chili peppers. And then he complains about how, if you eat them, it'll just make you tear and sweat. And how could there possibly be anybody who's actually eating these? Or that, there, you know, he's, he basically says very few people eat these. And so I argue that what he, what's really going on there is a class difference. And he's not recognizing that the farmers wouldn't be growing two varieties of a crop that they're not using. Um, and instead he's talking about, you know, people like me, members of the elite or my, me and my friends don't eat very many of them because we haven't built up a tolerance for them. Um, so those are really important resource. Um, I also draw a lot on uh, pharmacopoeia or Chinese medicine, uh, books about Chinese medicine, that include lists of ingredients, Um, basically anything I could find. Um, So recipe books, uh, there's a little bit of of stuff from fiction, uh, from an opera, uh, a couple of, not not much in the way of paintings, but but one that's a little more detailed, woodblock print, um, a tiny bit of poetry. Um, So... Basically, I'm looking for it anywhere I can possibly find it, partly because none of the sources are very long. Um, So my longest source from the late imperial period for the chili pepper is about five pages long. Um, And everything else is shorter than that. And most of them are significantly shorter than that. So to make up for that lack of length, I had to find source a lot of different sources in order to see where chilies were showing up. Um, another thing that's really important in terms of methodology for this research was that I would not have been able to do this research uh, without there being all of these huge digital digitized uh, resources available. Um, so I could use those to do full text searches for chili pepper and, and find the very few hits, you know, reasonably, otherwise, you know, I'd be, I'd still be doing research if I was still looking through the actual books myself. I mean, I did do a lot of that, but, that having in the, in the last 20 years, the Chinese have done an amazing job of digitizing a lot of different documents and making those available for, for full text searches, which, which really helped this project.
0: These sources being in Chinese and sometimes even literary or classical Chinese needed to be first interpreted and then subsequently translated to make them accessible to the average reader how difficult was it to translate the contents of these works while preserving as best you could the nuances and the literary forms in which they were written?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a challenge for me. Uh, Classical Chinese is something I still read quite slowly. Um, And classical Chinese, as opposed to modern Chinese, it's very terse. And so There's more room for interpretation. Um, So yeah, it was definitely a challenge at times to do the translations. Um, I mean, a lot of the stuff I was working with wasn't written in a super elegant style. So I wasn't faced with that sort of challenge of trying to reproduce that. Um, The poetry that that I have found for the chili pepper is not, I'm not a super good judge of Chinese poetry, but I can tell this is not good poetry. And so I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was losing much in, in the way I was translating that poetry. Um, So, but yeah, it's definitely a challenge. um, And, and I definitely, when I had difficulties would would consult with friends to see what their help, help with, with some of those translation issues. Let's take
0: a step back from the writing process and talk about the story your book attempts to tell this work while primarily a cultural biography also fits into a broader narrative of how Ming and Qing China navigated its position within this burgeoning system of global trade and commerce in the 16th to 18th centuries the traditional view of China and economic history paints it as sort of isolationist, especially in the waning years of the Ming dynasty. Do you see your story of the chili pepper as in some ways an emphatic rebuttal to this point of view?
1: I would think so, yeah. Um, It's definitely a really good example of the movement, uh, the, the global movement of a crop And, you know, fairly rapid global movement of a crop. So less than a hundred years to travel all the way around the world. Um, and so, yeah, I think it really points it out. And I think one of the things that's worth with reemphasizing is that it's, you know, it's for the most part, I don't think it's a super conscious movement of the chili pepper. Um, I mean, it's definitely not a trade commodity but i think also that it's probably mostly moving as crew members leave the ship you know some of them might intentionally be planting it otherwise they might just be food scraps that are getting dumped out and the seeds are growing um but it's it's not ever a huge massive scale of trade and so it's a really interesting example that we can see sort of uh, an element of the movement of people in addition to the movement of this plant. So, you know, if you think about some of the ships that are potentially moving the chili pepper, we have the Spanish galleons start or the Manila galleons start moving across uh, in the 1500s from the Pacific coast of Mexico across to the Philippines. And that's certainly one of the routes for the chili peppers getting to the Philippines and Southeast Asia. And then from there, probably getting to China. And so the crews on those ships were quite mixed. There'd be Spaniards, there'd be Matisos, there'd be uh, Indian uh, indigens from the Americas, all of them on that on those ships. And then, if you look at some of the other ships that are coming from the Indian Ocean Basin or from the, from Europe over into Eastern Asia, they typically would have mixed crews as well. And so, a number of those people on the cruise would have been accustomed to eating chilies and they're bringing chilies with them to eat. And then somehow those chilies are getting planted in the various places where they stop. Um, I'd love to know more details about that, but I don't think we'll ever be able to figure out exactly how the, the first seeds get off of those ships and into the hands of Chinese in, in China
0: how long then did it take for the chili to establish itself as commonplace in Chinese households?
1: Um, Again, it's a little hard to tell exactly, but we do have a source from 1621. It's a source. uh, It's a good example of how we need to be careful not to completely separate food from medicine in China because the the title of the book is basically Pharmacopoeia of Edible Plants. Um, And so that text is the first one to explicitly talk about chili peppers in cuisine, and it also opens up with describing the chilies as being grown everywhere. Now, we have to be a little careful because it's one author's opinion. And unfortunately it's an anonymous author, so we don't know anything about them or even where they're from. Um, but at least one person in 1621 felt like they were everywhere. Um, I don't think they were, but it's certainly taking off pretty quickly by that account. Um, certainly as we move into the 18th century, it becomes more and more common and it's talked about more and more and more and more types of sources start having the chili pepper in it. And, and by the late 18th century, it's actually entered into uh, recipe books as well. It seems to me that the time it took for such a fundamental
0: change in taste and preferences of the Chinese people to occur was remarkably short. You acknowledge in your book that cuisine is a very conservative component of culture. But by most accounts, or at least a few accounts that we have, the chili pepper in China appears to have defied this trend. Why was this the case?
1: Um, Yeah, it's a good question. I think think you're right. I I do think it's defying that trend. And that's one of the things that I find really fascinating about studying the chili pepper. Um, I think one of the things that it took off for, and it's particularly for the lower classes, it takes off as a a flavoring before it does for elites. Um, And that is it it served as an economical substitute for other flavorings. Um, So one of the things that's important for the chili pepper is its recognition as a particular category of flavoring It's fit into the pungent category. And so not surprisingly, it's mostly used as a substitute for pungent flavorings. So it's used as a substitute for um, particularly black pepper, which was expensive because it was imported. But it's also used as a substitute for the native uh, Sichuan pepper or flower pepper um this is completely unrelated to either the chili pepper or the black pepper um but it was definitely used as a substitute for that indigenous sichuan pepper um now it's not that salt is not a, a categorized as a pungent flavoring. It's it's categorized as salt or salty. Um, And so, but the chili pepper was also used as a substitute for salt. And this is particularly early on in its introduction. And one of the things that happened in the late Ming, so early, um, well, I mean, we're really late 1500s into the early 1600s. Uh, but especially the early 1600s. There's some problems in the salt market. Um, The government has a a semi-monopoly on salt, and there's a lot of problems in terms of the government management of it and the merchants managing. And, And the result is that the whole marketing system collapses a couple of different points in the early 1600s which results in really high prices for salt. And some people were really priced out of being able to afford salt. Um, And so the chili pepper, its popularity is taking off right around that time. And it seems, I think its popularity probably increased dramatically because of those failures in the salt uh, industry, and the salt market. Um, Now, it's important to note that humans, of course, biologically need salt, uh, particularly sodium, and the chili pepper cannot substitute for that biological need. But most people consume way, way more salt than they need biologically. And so what the chili pepper can substitute for then is the salt that's being used as flavoring not the salt that's needed, the very small amount of salt that's needed biologically. Um, and so I, I really think those that substitution and that economics of it so that the chili pepper, you could grow it in your kitchen garden, in your vegetable garden, essentially for free. It's going to, you know, you need your labor input, but you don't have to buy it. And even the native Sichuan pepper, Grows on it grows on a small tree, so most people could not grow that in their small garden, and so even that native pepper would have to be bought at the market, and so the chili pepper would still be you know cheaper than that. Um, so I think that economics of substitution played a key role, and then as we move it, you know by the early to mid 18th century. There's fewer references to the chili pepper as a substitute, showing that it's really gained ground and gained traction on its own as a flavoring, and it's not really being used as a substitute anymore, but being used on its own merit.
0: You've talked about economic factors as a reason for the Chili's rapid spread across China. Did geographical and climatic features also come into play, especially in explaining differences in the appeal of the chili pepper across different regions?
1: Yeah, this is... I mean, this is a question where, you know, I feel like I have some of it in answer, but maybe not as complete as I would like because there are, of course, huge differences between regional cuisines in China. And one of the differences between them is how much they use chili peppers. Um, So the area where the chili pepper first arrived. So Hangzhou is also known as the Jiangnan region. Um, so the lower Yangtze river area, the cuisine there is prides itself on subtle flavoring. So obviously the chili pepper did not make great inroads there. Um, and then another really important cuisine, in China is the Cantonese cuisine um, centered in in Guangzhou and Hong Kong. And that cuisine also does not emphasize the chili pepper. Um, They certainly use them, but they use uh, fewer of them and they tend to use varieties that aren't particularly spicy. And so thinking about where the chili pepper took off definitely the geography and the climate and then, you know, sort of pre-existing culinary practices had a big influence. Um, so I'll just use Sichuan as my example of a place where, I, where the chili pepper really took off, but there are of course others as well. Um, so Sichuan is inland. It has, um, It can be hard to get to, so importing thing, anything that's imported is expensive. Um, And then it's a super humid climate. And so food preservation was traditionally a very important aspect of Sichuan cuisine. And so a lot of the methods for food preservation, including salting and pickling and smoking all of those add a lot a pretty strong flavor to the to the food, and so introducing a a new plant, a new spice that also has a strong flavor means that you know it didn't have that sort of hurdle to overcome. Um, in addition, one of the things that I also discovered in this project was that it was really important to understand how the chili pepper fit into the Chinese traditional medicine. So I mentioned that we that, that for the Chinese, it's really hard to separate cuisine from medicine. So anything that goes into the body is going to impact the health of the body. And so it was important for the chili pepper becoming popular for it to get categorized in terms of how it affects the body. And so one of those things I already mentioned was that it gets categorized into the pungent flavoring. And then, you know, this won't be a surprise, but in terms of whether it was heating or cooling, it was heating. Um but, you know, these things had to be assessed and had to be written down into the medical literature so people, and, and you know, both written as well as orally, so people would understand how they could use it uh, medicinally. Um, the chili pepper has a really good characteristic of being able to expel excess damp, and um, which is an important uh, element within uh, Chinese medicine. Sometimes that's as obvious as the sweating that's caused by the chili pepper, and in another way. And other times, it's it's a more subtle exp you know, getting rid of excess moisture from the body. Um, for people living in Sichuan and neighboring Guizhou and Hunan, where it's really, really hot and humid in the summer, but also really damp in the wintertime, within that traditional Chinese medicine s- system, it's believed it's really important for them to eat something regularly that helps the body to expel all of that excess moisture from the, from the environment and so the chili pepper was is really good at this according to that to those systems and so that really helped it take off in regions that we now think of as regions that are really really prevalent for eating chili peppers so hunan sichuan guizhou yunnan all have that similar climate and a similar daily use of them and so people who live there now will often think, you, you know, you need to eat them probably daily in order to stay healthy. So that health aspect is important and that combines with that climate. Now, just to show you that, that it's not super simple to explain, oh, well, the chili pepper took off where it was humid, that, that doesn't. It's not that simple because both that Jiangnan region around Hangzhou or Shanghai, and of course the region uh, Kanta- around Guangzhou, the Cantonese area around Guangzhou and Hong Kong, they're really, really humid too, and yet they don't feel like they need to eat something like the chili pepper to regulate their bodies. And I think a lot of that has to do with the different types of humidity, um, ocean type versus internal continental type. And then another example where we can see that we, you know, we, we have to sort of look at each region, region by region, and not just talk about humidity, but talk about other factors as well is, uh, Shanxi, um, particularly the area around uh, Xi'an and and a little bit south of Xi'an in that province. They also love to eat chilies, but it's really dry there. Um, And so the explanation of expelling damp doesn't work there. Um, But I do think That some of the other thing, uh, uh, an explanation that works well for there is that they had a cuisine that tended to have a lot of starch. So they ate a lot of noodles and they ate a lot of manto, which is steamed bread, which by themselves don't have much flavor. And so finding something that you could add where you didn't have to add a lot of it, but it added a lot of flavor, like the chili pepper, is probably what helped it take off in that, in that area. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you
0: can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Given such regional variations in the use of the chili, I think it's quite logical to conclude that there will be different names given to the chili in different parts of China. Could you perhaps walk us through some of the more common names?
1: Sure. So the earliest name. So this is a name that gets used in that first source from 1591. So this is in that Hangzhou central coastal area is Fan Zhao. Um, so Fan mean is one of many different characters that can mean, that means foreign. Um, and then Zhao, the original meaning of Zhao is Sichuan pepper. Um, And then that same character, jiao, is used once black pepper arrives. So the the main name for black pepper in Chinese is hu jiao. Um, And so there's already once, you know, black pepper has borrowed that character for Sichuan pepper. So another pungent flavoring has already borrowed it. So when the chili pepper arrives, it's sort of a natural character to use but you, you need a modifier. You have to call it something besides jiao because jiao is already Sichuan pepper. And even Sichuan pepper is typically not just called jiao. It's usually called hua jiao, flower pepper, or chuan jiao, Sichuan pepper. Um, so that's the first example. So the author was aware that it was pungent uh, and so drew on that native plant name. And then obviously is also aware that it was from overseas. Um, Interestingly, based on where he placed Sichuan, the the chili pepper in his book, he was probably not actually eating it. um, And he was primarily using it as a decorative plant. So the elite initial use was primarily as decorative plants. And it's a lot later that they start using it as a flavoring. Um, if we look up in the North uh, East, so near Korea, where it gets introduced, the name for it up there is Qinjiao. Um, and Qinjiao is a little get was confusing and, and caused some problems initially for my research. Because that's also a name of a variety of Sichuan pepper from the f- region where the former state of Qin was located, so modern day Shanxi. Um, so that became a problem because if a lot of the gazetteers, as I mentioned, only list two character names of plants in their product sections. And so if I initially, I was thinking, oh, OK, if I see a plant and they name it hua jiao, that's definitely Sichuan pepper. And then the next entry is qin zhao, then maybe I can assume that's the chili pepper. But later I found a gazetteer that actually described, that had a, a description of each of those. And it was very clear that it was talking about two varieties of Sichuan pepper. So then I had to go back and basically I could only as, count it as a chili pepper if it had a description where I could definitely tell it was chili pepper. And that is true for all a lot of the sources in the Northeast. They're using that word Qin zhao, to describe the chili pepper. And then they're using a different word, usually the Hua zhao, or flower pepper for the indigenous pepper. And so One of the arguments that I make, and also um, Zhang and Wang in their article make a similar argument that when you have that earliest name in a particular region and it's distinct from the earliest name in other regions, that's good evidence that that was one of the entry points for the chili pepper into China. Um, So the logic of that name... (laughs) I think is that they're essentially borrowing the name of another pungent spice, but they're borrowing one that, you know, they're vaguely aware of, but it isn't the name that they usually use for the native spice. So they're using it this way. Um, And I think it also shows a lack of understanding that it was originally from overseas and that probably what happened was that it was spread sort of hand-to-hand, like I described before, from Korean farmer to Korean farmer, and then eventually from Korean farmer to Chinese farmer in the Northeast, and then you know from hand-to-hand from in the Chinese farmers. And so there is a lack of recognition that it's from overseas, and that contrasts with that earliest name where that's very true. And then the other earliest name that I think demarcates an entry point is in Taiwan. And that name is Fanjiang, And that means foreign ginger. And so there, I think there's a lot less use of Sichuan pepper in Taiwan, but a whole lot of use of ginger and so that's another pungent spice, and they're borrowing that pungency, and then perhaps also, I mean, probably not so much of a substitution, because ginger wouldn't have been very expensive in Taiwan, but perhaps a way of using it similar to the way they used ginger, but acknowledging, again, that it does come from overseas. Um, And then there's just a lot of other names. I've, I've found over 50 different names for the chili pepper in China, most of which are are fairly regional in use rather than sort of national in use. Uh, while I'm on the names, I want to point out one that's a little different. Um, so across modern China, so today in China... Most Chinese use the term la jiao, which is spicy pepper. Um, And that name develops on fairly early, uh, but doesn't really become super popular uh, until the 19th century. But that's the dominant name now. In Sichuan, if you're looking at scholarly literature, they use that term but if you're talking to somebody in Sichuan, they almost all use the name Hai Jiao, which is sea pepper, or ocean pepper. Um, And that, when you look at it, it it looks like they're conscious that this was from overseas. Um, But interestingly, I've, you know, looking at, All the places where I found the use of that name, um, it gets used other places as well as in Sichuan, but today it's really only used in Sichuan. Um, That name was never used on the coast. It was only used in inland provinces in the south. And so my conclusion is that that means they were acknowledging that the pepper came to them from the coast but weren't necessarily aware that it was coming from overseas. Um, And certainly now, if you talk to an average person in Sichuan, they'll use that term, sea or ocean pepper, but for them, it won't make them think that it's not something that's been in Sichuan for forever. Um, So they're not necessarily going to make the leap that it's not an indigenous spice. Uh, and that's that's true, all all throughout China, that there's. When I first started presenting my work, a lot of people were really surprised to to learn that the chili pepper was not native to China.
0: We've talked a fair bit about the integration of chili in Chinese cuisine. How did chili transform Chinese perceptions and definitions of spiciness and pungency?
1: Yeah, so we get this uh, a shift in the meaning of the word la. Um, So la is usually translated into English as spicy. Um, There's another older term, xin, which is usually translated as pungent. Um, The term la is usually sort of very pungent, (laughs) would be another way of describing it. Um, So if you look in older dictionaries, including ones from around the time the chili pepper was introduced. La was used to describe the flavor of things like ginger and garlic. Um, and then over time, as I just mentioned, the, the name for the chili pepper slowly becomes more and more common to include that, that character la for spicy and la jiao becomes the dominant name for the chili pepper really in, in the 19th century and, and, and the 20th century. Um, So that law then becomes the main way of describing the chili pepper. But in addition, the definition of law changes. And so if we look in very modern 21st century dictionaries, the, La has now become the first, I mean, the chili pepper has now become the first example in what is something that is La. Um, So La is now the flavor of, of things like chili pepper, garlic, and ginger. Um, So it has become the real prime example of what it means to be La. And if you, if you ask the Chinese will ask people, um, if you, whether or not they can eat spicy food. And they don't usually mean can you eat ginger or garlic because that's going to be in pretty much everything. Um, What they mean is can you eat chili peppers? Um, And the same is true for the inverse. You can say I can't can't eat spicy. That really means that you don't eat chili peppers.
0: These are very interesting observations, but I can't help but notice that Aside from the contemporary trends which you just talked about, many of the observations you've made throughout this podcast and your book as well have been a lot more relevant to rural and local communities and reflect the way the chili was used among, for lack of a better term, commoners. I'd like to know a little more about elite perceptions of the chili pepper. How was the arrival of the chili received among the country's ruling elite?
1: Yeah, so as I mentioned, the the very first author to write about chilies, I think was was using them as a decorative plant, and we have examples of other other authors talking about them as decorative plants, and they and they work really well. That if in Chinese culture, the color red is a color of celebration, and shiny red is really valued. And then in addition, if you think about the shiny red pods on a chili plant, contrast really nicely with the dark green leaves. And so it makes a lot of sense that they would have been used as decorative plants. Um, I just point out an interesting parallel. When the chilies first arrive back with Columbus in Spain, they are not eating them and their initial use is as decorative plants, especially in monasteries. Um, So that initial use for elite is really decorative use. Um, There's definitely some resistance amongst the elite for using chilies as a flavoring. And there's a couple of different factors that play into that. I mean, there's definitely just a class value of, of of feeling like really, really strong flavorings might be something that the elite don't need. And then it's really important to understand the, particularly as we move into the 18th century, um, the elite writing about food was really, really dominated by that Jiangnan area, Hangzhou, Suzhou area cuisine in the the lower Yangtze area. And that cuisine has a long, long history of subtle flavoring and not wanting to overpower the flavor of the the main ingredients. And that is already popular amongst the elite and then it becomes even more popular cuz the the Chenlong emperor who who reigned for 60 years in the 18th century was a huge fan of that cuisine and really promoted it and so it, it's really hard for the chili pepper to get a hold in elite culinary writings during that period because it it bucks that system of that subtle flavoring. Um, Another aspect of elite tradition that's sort of in parallel with that is that there are traditions of uh, food avoidance in in terms of ritual. so really obvious examples for this are going to be uh, Buddhist monastics and Taoist monastics. Um, Taoist monastics borrow pretty heavily some of the practices for monasticism from Buddhism. Um, and in within Buddhism, really strong flavorings are seen as uh, a hamper to meditation. And are, are going to distract you and are, are seen as some of those, um, this worldly desires that are going to distract you from the main goal of meditation and enlightenment. And so, you know, the chili pepper, of course, isn't in any of those original sources. Buddhist sources is something to avoid, but those sources do include things like ginger and garlic. And so if you're avoiding ginger and garlic, obviously you're going to avoid the chili pepper. And then Confucian uh, elite, there's not a, a sort of permanent fast or permanent food avoidance, but there is, there are points where they need to fast and isn't necessarily a complete avoidance of food, but that fasting involves avoidance of meat and an avoidance of strong-flavored vegetables. And again, those lists are older than, you know, predate the arrival of the chili, but they also include very similar things like onions and garlic and ginger. And again, the chili pepper being something even stronger than those is something they're going to want to avoid. Again, it, the idea is to help keep a clearer mind for performing the ritual. So we have those traditions and practices that have a sort of a built-in bias for the elite against the chili pepper. And it takes it quite a while to break down some of those barriers. So the earliest known reference to the chili pepper in elite culinary writing or recipe books isn't until the end of the 18th century. So around 1790. Um, And then even though the chili pepper was in that really early medical text from 1621, there are a whole lot of medical texts after that that do not include the chili pepper. And there's, there's similar sorts of things in terms of uh, something with that intensive flavor for some of the written medical practices would be seen as potentially overpowering of other ingredients in a, in a uh, formula. Um, and then there's also uh within the elite, whether you're talking about cuisine or you're talking about medicine, there's often a desire to cite precedent. And of course, there's there's no ancient precedent you can cite for the chili pepper because it wasn't there yet. Um, And so that also was a hurdle that had to be overcome.
0: Something else that came up earlier in our conversation was the role of chili in traditional Chinese medicine and its continued relevance in this age of modern medicine. How can modern understandings of capsaicin, which is the chemical that gives chili its spicy flavor, illuminate our understanding of traditional Chinese medicinal applications of the chili pepper?
1: Sure. Um, so, the the chili pepper, as I mentioned, is is used. If we look at modern practice, it's re, it used still a lot in terms of impacting health in, in those humid climates for expelling what, the, what Chinese medicine refers to as damp. Um, but there's also other things. If we look some of the earliest sources that talk about the medicinal impact of chili peppers in China, talk about them as uh, stimulating appetite stimulating digestion, um, and so there we can look at capsaicin. One of the things that, that we know looking at sort of modern biomedicine is that one of the things that the, that capsaicin does is it triggers salvation in the mouth. And saliva and chewing are, of course, uh, first stage of digestion, and so that's helping in terms of, of increasing digestion, but salvation is also something that helps to stimulate appetite. And so we can see that from there. And then also once a capsaicin in the stomach, it also uh, activates or stimulates the production of gastric juices or the movement of gastric juices. And that also can help in, in terms, particularly in terms of digestion and, um, and then, the uh, we know from again modern biomedicine that capsaicin has a strong um, antimicrobial effect. So, and also antifungal effect. So, it, it can kill off a lot of uh, microbes, including bacteria, and then also can kill off fungus. Um, so we can look at, um, for example, in Fujian, which is a southeast coastal province where they eat a lot of seafood, all of the local histories for about, I don't know, 200, 300 years from around Fuzhou are are yeah. Anyways, from one of the regions in, in Fujian, they talk about the chili pepper as being able to cure f- poisoning from fish. So I, I'm thinking there's probably some sort of potentially a bacteria or something like that, that that's getting into the food that they're eating and the chili pepper is being a really good treatment for that. Um, so that's probably building on that antimicrobial aspect of it. I've also got sources that talk about it as an anti-malarial. Um, I don't know of any modern sources that particularly that directly address that, but it's a potential the antimicrobial aspect of it. But there's also an interesting uh, a source that, um, that talks about it as um, being an anti-malarial and also an anti-inflammatory. And we we also know um, from contemporary studies that indeed the the, um, chili pepper does have that sort of anti-inflammatory aspect, the the capsaicin in the chili pepper. Um, There are also a couple of examples from... Uh, early modern sources that, that have treatments that I wouldn't necessarily suggest that we try out. Um, the, the one of them is uh, used as a, I mean, it's described in several sources as a miraculous treatment for hemorrhoids. We um, have a lot of people who talk, really question that because if you're eating really, really spicy peppers, that, you know, the saying is it burns on the way in and on the way out. And that seems like that might not be a very good treatment for hemorrhoids. But we do have these multiple sources that talk about it as a miraculous cure for hemorrhoids. So there may be something to that.
0: <laughs> I'd like to turn then to a very different aspect of culture, which you study in your book. Given how pervasive and influence the chili pepper was on Chinese society, we would expect it to feature rather prominently in artistic representations of the late imperial period. Was this necessarily the case?
1: Um, Unfortunately for my study, no, but it it is intriguing. You know, it is an important thing to look at. So it really, I have not found chili peppers in any late imperial paintings. I mean, you know, there may be some, but I, I, I haven't been able to locate any. Um, What I found them, I found a few woodblock prints, but those are in botanical texts. So they're there for identifying the plant. Um, And then in terms of poetry, which is a really, really important form of artistic expression in Chinese, I have only found a, a very few poems. And as I mentioned earlier, the one that I actually translate in the, in the book is clearly not a particularly good poem. Um, and so one of the things I argue is that it's the sort of requirement for precedent or the building on historic tropes for painting and for poetry really just seem to have been too high of a hurdle for the chili pepper to get over Um, and that those aspects of elite culture were pretty conservative and the chili pepper really didn't make inroads into those areas Um, but it does become you know where it does make its way sort of artistically is as a decorative plant and then also more recently as a, a decoration for Chinese New Year's. Um, so a lot of people are hanging strings of decorative chili pepper. So usually they're made out of uh, cloth. Um, sometimes they're made of glass. Um, and you hang a one string of these on either side of the doorway of a house or a business at Chinese New Year's. And it's essentially a wish for uh, success and prosperity in, in the future. Beyond the aesthetic, artistic
0: representations of objects like the chili pepper also drew on associations with very specific identities not just regional identities which we covered briefly earlier but gender identities too could you tell us a bit more about the spicy go motif or more generally the the female gender trope associated with chilies in chinese literary works
1: sure so the one of the earliest records of the chili pepper is in a opera in the in just a few years after that first source so in in the mid 1590s and it is used for one of many plants and flowers that are being used to describe a particular female character. Um, And then this becomes a a trope that that becomes even more important when we're looking at a, a really famous female character in the dream of the red chamber or Hong Lomong, which is an 18th century novel. Um, and there we have the character Feng lots um, where lots is another name for chili pepper. Um, and she is basically described as her, her character is feisty and, She's very active. She has a lot of agency. She's been picked by the matron or the matriarch of the family in this novel to be the one who manages the purse strings. So she has got a lot of economic power. Um, And so there's a parallel between the the spiciness of the chili and her character. Um, In the end of that book, ends badly for her. And and part of that is because she's seen as crossing gender lines and, and taking on too much of a male role. Um, but if we look in the modern period, we can sort of see those types of female characters and their associations with chili peppers in the modern use of the term la maize, which is spicy girl or spicy young women. Um, and they're often associ- they're, they're associated with places where chilies are eaten quite a bit and especially associated with Hunan. Um, and the idea in the modern time gets rid of some of that, gets rid, gets rid of the negative aspects of it. And we have for example, this great song that came out in the 90s and it's is still popular up to the present of, it's also called La Maid's. Um, and in it, the, the, the young women in that song are extremely capable. They've been eating spicy chili peppers since they were little. And the essence of the chilies has helped shape their personalities and they're going out in the world and they take the chilies with them when they go out into the world. And they are active and they, they are in control of their lives. And anybody who wants to be, you know, for the men who want to be a partner with them, they have to be careful about making sure they understand that nature of their, of the zestiness of their life, of those women's lives.
0: Another very specific identity associated with the chili pepper is that of Mao Zedong. How did he come to be nearly synonymous with the chili pepper in parts of China like Hunan?
1: Yeah, Mao loved chili peppers. Um, And he would often make fun of people who came to visit him and couldn't eat chili peppers. And he also very directly associated the ability to eat chili peppers with the ability to be a capable fighter and a capable revolutionary. Um, so there's a saying that's that's often, it's slightly misappropriated in, in the sense of it, it, it gets interpreted as without the chili pepper, there would have been no revolution. Um, what Mao actually said was that i have to have chili peppers in order to eat if i don't eat i can't lead the revolution therefore without chili peppers i couldn't couldn't do the revolution um but you know it either way i think it works really nicely um for understanding for for sort of coming to terms with a contemporary chinese understanding of the chili pepper in the sense that that intense spicy flavor of the chili pepper gets correlated with the intensity and importance of revolution and revolutionary change. Um, So, you know, just to give a couple examples for Mao's love of the chilies, which are really widely known in China, um, he actually would sprinkle chili pepper, dried chili pepper flakes on his watermelon. Um, So he's really interested in that spiciness. And then at, at some point, apparently one of his doctors felt that he was eating too many chilies and it might negatively impact his health. And his rebuttal was, if I can't Face a few chili peppers in my bowl. How am I going to face my enemies? Uh, you know whether uh, yeah. In other words, <laughs> just go away. I am going to keep eating chili peppers. Um, and there is a number of of songs from that period of the revolution and also the war against the Japanese, which which use sort of images of of fighters and their ability to eat chili peppers and and draw that parallel quite quite closely.
0: I think something that should be quite clear to listeners by this point is just how important the chili pepper is in Chinese cuisine, medicine, and culture in general. Do you think the degree to which the chili pepper has embedded itself in Chinese society is a phenomenon unique to China?
1: No, I, I, I do think it's really, really important in South and Southeast Asia as well. Um, and you, you, you think about Um, the chili pepper and curries in South Asia and certainly really spicy food in Thailand, but also in other parts of Southeast Asia. Um, You can also think of, you know, kimchi in, in Korea. All of those are things that are really important in terms of food identities or identity foods, um, for those cultures, um, so I, I don't think it is unique to China in in that sense. But I think, um, I mean, what maybe I you know I haven't studied the, the, the other cultural aspects of chili peppers in those places to know whether or not it's worked its way into things like, uh, you know, being an image for something like revolution or or for uh, independent women or things like that. Um, it's, seems like it's quite likely that there would be things like that in some of those other cultures as well. And then, you know, another parallel we could think of just in terms of a crop being introduced and changing the cuisine would be the tomato in, in Italy. Um, and that certainly is a, is a strong parallel. Um, I think it's important not to necessarily see the Chinese cases as, as unique, but to take it as an opportunity for looking at one crop and, and the impact the human use of it has had on a particular culture is, is just a fascinating way of, of looking at history.
0: As a way of concluding, I wonder if you could tell us what are the most important things or what is the most important thing that your study of the chili pepper can tell us about Chinese society in general during the late imperial period?
1: Um, I think one of the things that's really important to understand is the class dynamics of the chili pepper and that there's a difference in use, initial use in terms of class and then also in terms of just some of the differences I've found compared to some of the scholars in China is that importance of the lower classes, the farmers as spreaders of this new crop. And that it wasn't something that the elite were, had a, a major hand in. And instead it's it's very grassroots in terms of that movement and dispersal of the chili pepper as it, as it goes and moves throughout China. Um, I also think it's really important to understand, you know, for understanding within China, the understanding of the chili pepper as a flavoring can't be separated from its use in terms of health. Um, and so if we look at contemporary Chinese practice of Chinese medicine, the chili pepper really is not used in particular formulas for treating a particular illness, but it is used on a daily basis in all of those provinces where it's really humid in the interior in order to maintain health. Um, and so that aspect of it not just being a flavoring is is really important for understanding its impact on Chinese you know, how the Chinese have used it and how that's impacted Chinese culture is really important.
0: Well I think we've taken up quite enough of your time today, Brian. So let's wrap it up with one final question. If you could interview someone for their new book in
1: history, who would that be? Right. Um so, a, a recent book I've read on, on Chinese history is "The Eunuch and Emperor in the Great Age of Qing Rule" by Norman Kutcher, um, which is a really fascinating look at the role of eunuchs during the Qing. Um, and one of the things that, that's really fascinating to me is that the Qing were conscious of abuses by eunuchs during the preceding Ming Dynasty. And throughout the dynasty claimed that they weren't going to have any of the problems with eunuchs that the Ming did. But in f- fact, they actually had a lot more eunuchs and some of the same problems, although, you know, not to the same extent as during the Ming Um and then just interesting, he traces the the shifting uses of them and the shifting rhetoric of of how they're being used. Um, and it's just a really fascinating and, re, and you know, something that I I knew of course that they still had UNix, but I hadn't realized to the extent in which they were still relying on them for information and for advice and things like that. So it would be fun to talk to him, uh, Professor Kutcher.
0: Well, I very much enjoyed our conversation today, Brian. It's been truly enlightening, and it's quite incredible how you've used the humble and unassuming chili pepper to shed light on a series of very serious issues like class differences, gender stereotypes, and medical theories in late imperial China. And you, of course, have been a very gracious guest today. We'd definitely love to have you on the program again. Thank you so much for your time.
1: All right. Thank you so much, Joshua. I really enjoyed talking with you.
0: On that note, thank you for listening to this episode of New Books in History.